Hello, and welcome to Medical Matters. Uh, this is our uh, sixth episode, Resetting a Ticking Clock, uh, Redefining Aging. As this is our final episode of our first season, we can think of no guest more fitting than Dr. Peter Reed, a longtime member of the UNR Med family and director of the uh, Sanford Center for Aging. So Dr. Reed has lived quite a life. He received both his PhD and MPH in health behavior and health education from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He soon went on to pursue his interest in public health and aging as CEO of the Pioneer Network, an international nonprofit dedicated to transforming the culture around aging into one that provides dignity and quality of life to seniors across the country. He's also published extensively, contributing well over 50 publications to the field of aging over his career. In committing himself to a life of service and advocacy, Dr. Reed has served on the board of directors for the American Society of Aging, uh, Alzheimer's Association of Northern California and Northern Nevada, as well as a keynote speaker for a number of national and international conferences. Uh, so Dr. Reed, thank you for joining us. And I hope uh, I did your career justice. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's great to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Fantastic. Uh, so just to get started, uh, we just want to kind of uh, ask, you know, how you got your start as the director for the Sanford Center. Uh, what kind of motivated you to take on that role? Right. So uh, I've had a little bit of a non-traditional career uh, from an academic perspective, uh, because after I finished graduate school, um, I was recruited to go to the National Office of the Alzheimer's Association. Uh, and essentially translate the research that I had been doing, looking at the quality of life and quality of care for people living with dementia into a national campaign. And so that took me straight out of the university and into the kind of national nonprofit sector. And so I worked in leadership roles in different nonprofit organizations for about 10 years, always focused at the intersection of research policy and practice as it related to aging and quality of life. Um, and when I saw the opportunity to join the University of Nevada, Reno, uh, I got really excited because that gave me the chance to come back to academia and to bring all of those other skills that I had learned to bear uh, in a setting that was through the Stanford Center, not only um, contributing to the knowledge generation and the scholarship activities at the university, but also directly delivering services within the community. And the Sanford Center, uh, as part of the School of Medicine, really provides that perfect home. I'm able to work on developing and delivering community-based aging services. I'm able to teach students about aging and public health. Uh, we offer a geriatrics clinic where we're directly delivering services. Uh, and all of those initiatives are grounded in the latest research. So we're translating evidence into new community programs, supports, and clinical services. Uh, and taking advantage of the organizational leadership skills that I've gained kind of throughout my career. So it was really the, the perfect storm of bringing together all of my different interests in a way um, that enables me to really serve the community and um, serve the university. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. It sounds a lot like the aging community that you focus on is very community-based type of healthcare. And uh, I have a question for you based on that. Do you think that that sort of model where we really focus on the patient and the community and educating um, those in our community, do you think that that sort of um, modality can be applied to our current healthcare system and the way that we view um, patient care? Absolutely. Um... One of the challenges that I think 
older adult space is that the medical conditions that they develop in many ways affect their everyday life. And what I mean by that is that, you know, older adults have a very high prevalence of chronic diseases, things like diabetes and arthritis, hypertension, COPD, uh, kind of the list goes on and on, and, and they'll develop multiple chronic conditions. And those have a direct impact on their activities of daily living or their ability to remain independent. And so there really aren't medical interventions for addressing the functional limitations that people have in their everyday life or for addressing the social risk factors that can contribute to those conditions. And so I think that there's a need to bridge what I would describe as the healthcare system with the aging services system. I think a lot of people don't realize that there is a vast aging services network. Um, in 1965, the Older Americans Act was passed and that created the administration on aging. It's now known as the Administration for Community Living, but they administer Older Americans Act funds to state unit, units on aging and then community-based aging services providers that offer things like Meals on Wheels and transportation and adult day programs um, and financial counseling uh, and all kinds of different support services that are necessary to bolster people's living situations so that you can then step in with medical interventions to address their medical conditions. So when you think about an older adult from a clinical context, it's important to be able to screen them and to diagnose the different conditions they have to come up with a treatment plan for those different conditions. But it's also important to recognize the network of community resources that can complement the work of a physician or a healthcare provider in meeting the totality of that whole person's needs. And that's really what I see as opportunities um, to enhance the field. Absolutely. I mean, I think taking this sort of integrative approach, you know, like through meshing public policy, as well as like, you know, uh, innovations and in research definitely um, will benefit, you know, old, older Americans, uh, you know, in all, in all many different ways. And I think, you know, we'll get a chance to really delve into uh, what exactly those impacts can be uh, later on. Um, you know, I think, so I kind of want to ask a question that's, it's related to the, the broad view of things. Uh, so aging as a concept is, you know, cynically taken as sort of this process of, of nearing the end of a person's life, right? It's marked by an increase in chronic conditions, um, often a deteriorating quality of life. Um, but then again, I, I prefer to be optimistic. Uh, and, you know, the things I see are that we tend to grow wiser, we grow more understanding, more empathetic, and we gain a greater understanding of life from a decades-long view. Um, another benefit is that you don't have to change diapers, or at least you're not required to. Um, so, like, I was wondering, like, what's your perspective on aging? Yeah, um, so that's a big question, <laughs> and I'm glad you asked it, because I think it's something that is really important which is, and I'll start with this, we live in a very ageist society. And what I mean by that is that just as you said, people have a tendency to view older adults, or as I call them elders, uh, as being in a stage of life that is one of loss and decline. Um, and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, so first of all, aging as a process is a natural lifelong process. Every person who is alive is aging and every person will continue to age until they are no longer alive. 
Um, and so, yes, there are challenges that may come along as one has lived a long time, right? And we can get into the data there. I mean, the CDC um, has reported that about 92% of people over the age of 65 have at least one chronic condition, and that 77% of people over the age of 65 have two or more chronic conditions, right? So again, there we're talking about diabetes, hypertension, COPD, um, dementia, you know, all the different things that can create challenges with people's independence. So the burden of chronic disease is very great. However, those chronic diseases were developed from decades and years of the experience of aging and are related to social determinants of health, to behavioral health, um, to a whole host of risk factors throughout one's entire life. And it's that accumulation of risk that results in the burden of chronic disease later in life. So the question I ask myself as a gerontologist and as someone who works in public health and aging is not, you know, how, how do you prevent all of those conditions? Though from a public health perspective, that would be outstanding, right? I mean, if we could prevent diabetes completely, that would be wonderful. But that seems like an unrealistic goal, at least in our current context. And so the question I ask is not how can we keep those diseases from developing, um, but first, yes, how can we reduce the burden of those? But then after the fact, how can we better manage those conditions so that people can live well, despite the challenges that come along with the aging process? How can we enable people to live well, even when they have physical and cognitive limitations that are affecting their everyday life? And I think that because we're an ageist society, we see those challenges and we think, oh, how awful that must be. I would argue that there is adversity at every age and there is adversity at every stage of life right? And different individuals are more resilient than others at overcoming that at different stages of life, right? That also intersects, I think, with the power of the media. Um, and this is a real challenge. We live in a very youth-oriented society, one that is just focused so much on youth and beauty uh, and image and look. Um, and as controversial as this may be, uh, you know, I, I'll share that, in my opinion, not all young people are beautiful. Uh, right. And so even that is a misnomer. Uh, I mean, I, I think that, you know, we just have this tendency to fear aging as a process and therefore we are ageist as a society, which means that we're discriminating against and disenfranchising elders from their rights as active citizens in our society. And because this is a podcast called Medical Matters, I'll take that even a step further and say that that ageism exists within our healthcare system. You know, I, uh, I have a, a story about that, uh, just as an example to illustrate my point that providers um, have certain images and make clinical decisions based on the assumptions that they have about someone because of their age, right? My wife is 49 years old and about five or six years ago, she tripped on a broken sidewalk and shattered her wrist, right? And so we went and there were three different providers in the same clinic that she went to who said, oh my gosh, you have to get the surgery because your wrist is collapsing on itself. And if we don't surgically repair it, then you will not have a functioning wrist the rest of your life. She said, and each one of them to a person said, well, but now if you were 80, we probably wouldn't recommend that procedure. And my wife is also a gerontologist. And so we both started thinking, well, why is that? Because 80 year olds don't need the use of their wrist. Uh, is there some cost benefit analysis to the, the number of years this person is expected to have? post-surgery with their new wrist. I mean, it's just, it's that type of decision that gets made for people grounded in the assumptions that people have about them based on their age. And one of the things that I really encourage to come back to your question is 
or maybe it was an earlier question, um, is really using patient-centered approaches to care. Understanding the person and their priorities and what their goals are, what matters to the patient. Um, and that really becomes critical. Assessments in your care planning and your treatment plans really are what's gonna be best for them as an individual. And that's how we can best serve elders is by getting to know what matters to them as a person and developing care plans that they're gonna be invested in following as well because it's aligned with their goals as a patient. Yeah, thank you for bringing up and, and sharing that, that story about your wife. Um, I hope that there weren't any complications with her treatment, but that brings up uh, a thought that I had. So in terms of ageism in, in healthcare, uh, what's your perspective on um, organ donations? So when you're going down the list and you have a young kid who is perfectly eligible and then you have someone older, I think typically they go to the younger kid because they assume that the older has had more life, uh, more life experiences, um, even though both are technically perfectly eligible for the organ. So what would be your thoughts on how they um, decide who gets the, the organ? Wow, that's a really tricky question. And I will um, offer a caveat first, which is that I am not a bioethicist. Uh, and I really see that in the realm of kind of bioethics, right? And, and kind of making decisions about prioritization of care relative to the resources that are available. Um, you know, I, I think that would have to be a discussion be between the team of providers relative to the resources that they have available and the individual situation uh, for the patients that they're going to be serving. And hopefully, there would be other criteria that could also be used in making those clinical decisions besides just age. Um, you know, I mean, you have to look at things like the likelihood of success of the um, of the organ transplant and and um, the you know just the viability of the other things that are going on. I mean, you know, there are questions also about what caused the need for the transplant. And gosh, I I really I honestly don't think I have a a super good answer for you in that regard, other than to say, I hope the decision can be made on the totality of the situation and not just between the young person and an old person. I, I, that to me feels like it wouldn't be the right decision. Absolutely. Just based on age. And I, I think it's a theme that we're probably going to be, you know, uh, looping back to uh, more than a few times that, you know, individuals are individuals regardless of their age, right? In terms of our treatment of them, you know, just treat them like uh, their own people, you know, with their own health, uh, their own health status and um, avoid, avoid generalizations. They tend to be damaging in most cases. Right. Um, but, you know, we, so you mentioned, uh, you know, this, this culture of ageism, um, particularly, you know, in, in our country, um, a lot of Western countries, I, I think, do share this. Um, and, you know, it really brought to mind something, something that's, that's been bugging me, um, is, you know, as an age of society, older individuals, they face you know, discrimination in all these different facets of life, right? Um, the discrimination percolates to, to healthcare, like, like you mentioned. It also, you know, affects their uh, opportunities in the job market, right? So, you know, employers as a general uh, trend, they tend to prefer the employees who are like, quote unquote, fresh faced, right? Uh, quote unquote, beautiful. I mean, <laughs> um, but that being said, you know, the, 
I mean, I, I guess a tendency is that older people also have uh, former years of experience and are actually more productive in a lot of cases um, because of that experience. And you know, as we see sort of this whole public health uh, situation unfold and uh, how we see it affect our nation's finances, we're gonna see social security dry up over the course of the next decade or so. Um, it'll be that much more important for older individuals to have opportunities in the job market. So I, I guess what, what is the best way that we can you know, combat the stigma in your view? Right, I, I think that there are multiple approaches to combating stigma and ageism in our society, um, but that they're all grounded in education and awareness. Um, and I know there's a, a wonderful um, community presentation that was developed by AARP, for example, it's called Disrupt Aging. Um, and so it's an awareness raising educational opportunity to challenge people's assumptions about older adults and to get people thinking critically about what it means to respect and honor an individual for who they are, irrespective of their age. Um, it's similar to other forms of discrimination, right? It's like, how do you combat racism? How do you combat misogyny, right? In, at an individual level, I think it helps to have more interpersonal relationships with people who are not like you in whatever way that may mean. And so in the context of ageism, maybe it's about more intergenerational relationships and giving younger people the opportunity to interact in positive and productive ways with elders. But I think at the community level, um, there really is a need for education and for awareness raising. Um, and it, it's going to continue to be a challenge. Now, you mentioned the issue of financial security um, and then the implications of social security. And you're right. Our population is aging very rapidly. Um, as we sit here today, approximately 14% of the population is over the age of 65. Uh, and within the next 20 years, that's going to increase to 20% of the population being over the age of 65. Um, and so that has a lot of implications, right? When are people going to be exiting the workforce? Um, and how are the new generations entering the workforce and making their career progressions into leadership roles? And what does that mean in terms of potential generational conflicts? And um, it's gonna be really interesting to see kind of how all of that plays out, um, but to recognize again, the importance of diversity. So just, as an example, and this is a study from many years ago uh, that is uh, covered in a textbook that I use for one of the courses that I teach, where they looked at um, the fact that 40% of older adults receive 80% of their income from Social Security. So a lot of people really don't have independent financial means to be able to support themselves without the support of Social Security. And on the flip side of that, a lot of folks do. And it, so, you know, <laughs> socioeconomic status is, again, one of those things that's filled with diversity. And it's about understanding individuals and their needs. Now, I'm more of an optimist when I look sort of towards the future. And I always just kind of have faith that we're going to figure these kinds of things out. Like when people say, well, Social Security is going to go bankrupt. To me, I'm like, well, maybe, but we will figure out some other sort of system. I mean, we're not going to end up in a vacuum where we're not providing the resources that people have earned. Um, you know, folks contribute to Social Security throughout their entire careers, and that's why they get that benefit. 
uh, after they exit the workforce. It's not an entitlement. Um, and so you can't just renege on resources that people have put into their entire lives. Um, so there will be some system that's put in place to ensure uh, that people are receiving the essentials that are required for everyday life. It, at least that's my that's my optimism speaking. I have I have uh, faith that uh, we'll have policymakers that make good decisions, and that we have a, a social safety net that supports people adequately, and that that'll just improve over time. Yeah, that's that's really um, I think an important point that you brought up about the absence of intergenerational um, interactions. That's definitely something that I and I'm, I'm sure you might also. Um, experience too, Sunil. Um, but on the idea of aging then as this this concept, this socio-biological construct almost, because a lot of it is embedded in the way that we um, view and we interact with the elder people of our society, how much of aging would you say is in our control? So physiologically, you know, our organs, they, they reach their expiration dates um, or they just end up not functioning as well as they, they did you know, in our 20s. But then how much of aging can be attributed to lifestyle habits? And if so, is there a way to um, control the way that, that we age? Yeah, again, that, that's kind of a macro level question um, that I think is really a really important question. And I know that there are um, scholars and, and that there's active research kind of in what I would describe as the anti-aging realm for folks who believe that they're going to be able to find solutions for extending life indefinitely. Um, I personally don't buy into any of that. I mean, I do think that there is a natural lifespan um, to the human body. And I, you know, I, I would hesitate to put a number on it, but I, I think that folks have lived to be, what, 120, 121 um, that seems like a, a relatively reasonable limit if you were going to try to put a number on it. Um, however, I think the goal is not, at least from my perspective as a public health gerontologist, and I would think for the medical community as well, the goal is not to extend life indefinitely. The goal is what we call the compression of morbidity, which means to enhance quality of life until someone dies. Um, as far as we know, in the history of human existence, the overall mortality rate is one to one, right? So, um, so death is something that is like aging, a natural part of life. Um, and so I do think though that one's health as they age, and I think there are a lot of risk factors uh, that contribute to people's health in the later years, right? And that contribute to the presence and the burden of chronic disease. If we could reduce those risk factors, then we can compress morbidity, meaning to reduce the impact of chronic diseases towards the end of life so that people can maintain their quality of life to the end of life. But those include biological and genetic factors, physical and social environmental factors. They also include behavioral factors. Um, and from a public health perspective, looking at chronic diseases, um, if we could, <laughs> target and eliminate, right? Excessive alcohol use, tobacco use, encourage physical activity and encourage a healthy diet. Those four behaviors, then we could have a tremendous impact 
uh, on the development of chronic diseases as people age. Um, but the challenge is that the social determinants of health come into play with those behaviors because behaviors are not always in the control of the individual. If you don't have access to healthy foods, if you don't have the financial means to be able to safely engage in physical activity, um, if your physical environment is not conducive of engaging in physical activity. Um, and so there are all kinds of different things that are related and it's a complicated picture, but that really is the goal from my perspective. Again, the goal is not to extend life as long as possible. The goal is to reduce the burden of, cog of chronic diseases that result in physical and cognitive limitations towards the end of life. Absolutely. I mean, it does seem like, you know, over the course of, you know, I'd say in the long term, you know, the past 100 years, 200 years, it seems like we've had, you know, some success in terms of like compressing uh, morbidity. Um, it, it, it actually reminds me of a conversation that I, a few conversations that I had with my grandma um, back in the day when, you know, she told me that old people used to be older. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, if you look a century ago at uh, pictures of people, whether they're in black and white images or uh, the very first color image, you know, whatever, whatever metric you choose, um, people who are 60 years old often didn't look like 60 year olds nowadays. They looked older. Um, I, my, I might say maybe 10 years older, something like that. Um, and, you know, you'd see high schoolers, uh, they would be, you know, visiting some of the first McDonald's restaurants. Um, and, you know, they would look like they are already middle class people with families, uh, you know, raising, you know, teenage children. Um, and it's, it's surprising to me. So it, it just gets me to wondering, you know, like what have been sort of those, those biggest impacts that we've made um, you know, to compress morbidity and, you know, what are, what are the, the most actionable things that we can do to, to bring those advancements in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I, I would lean on the work of uh, Dr. Lester Breslow. Um, and I, I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Breslow about 10 years or so ago. And he was the former dean of the UCLA School of Public Health and was the chief medical officer for the state of California in his career. And he published a paper back in, um, I think the late 90s, where he talked about our need to evolve into a third era of our understanding of health. And what he meant by that was that in the first era of health, which essentially spanned the entire human existence up till the beginning of the 20th century, we were battling infectious diseases, right? Um, now we know a little bit about that because of the last year with the COVID-19 pandemic. So this story makes a lot more sense in a pre-pandemic context, but for the most part, uh, we have overcome the, the need to consistently fight against infectious diseases. And that took place in the early part of the 1900s for a variety of reasons. Certainly there was the development of medical technologies and antibiotics in particular, um, but also the public health innovations, I mean, clean water um, and uh, you know, food guidelines and healthy food uh, and the recognition of the need for physical activity and healthy diets and all these conditions, screens on windows, right? Um, I mean, these kinds of things had a big impact in helping us transition from the first era of health where we focused on infectious diseases to the second era of health, which is where we are today still and have been for the last hundred years or so, um, where we're managing chronic conditions. We've extended the lifespan, right? The average life expectancy is much greater today than it was a hundred years ago. Um, and 
Because of that, people are living long enough to get chronic diseases. And so we haven't figured out yet how to conquer these diseases that people develop that we cannot cure that stay with them over decades, right? Where we're focused on better managing those conditions to improve quality of life. And what Dr. Breslow talked about was our need to transcend the second era of health and move into a third era of health where we're not disease focused at all, but where as a community and as a society, we recognize health as an innate quality that's an asset for our everyday living so that we're not battling infectious disease, we're not managing chronic disease, but we're engaged at the individual and community and policy levels in approaches and activities that enable us to live well and maintain our health over time. Um, and that that's gonna contribute to our overall health and functioning in the long run. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, I wanted to go back to your idea of intergenerational integration and i've been kind of thinking about that and do you have any thoughts on what that would look like in a uh, improved society where we do have more interaction with people from different generations since there's so much dichotomy between you know what we're what we were raised on especially in the age of technology and the way that you know kids these days are on their tablets instead of going outside like there's everything all the minutiae about kids lives these days are so drastic from those of their grandparents or even their parents or even even us i would say yeah um i mean i think it's just about human relation and the need to build diverse communities of people and for interactions and so one of the things, I mean, you mentioned technology, and that's a really interesting point, right? Because, again, if you take the long view, you know, 20-year-olds have always been hipper to technology than 80-year-olds <laughs> at any given point, right? So, like, today's 80-year-olds were once 20, and they used the technology of that day better than the older people in their society. And someday, you will both be 80 and there will be 20 year olds who are really slick on whatever technology exists at that time that you struggle to use. Um, and it's just because of the normalcy of everyday life and, and the fact that, you know, we grab onto things much more readily as younger people um, because it is newer for us. It's like it, it, it's part of our everyday life in ways that people who have a more root, established routine and have not relied on those technologies to get to their point in life don't have a need for it to the greater, greater degree. Um, so technology is an interesting point and it'll always be evolving and it'll always be changing. And I, you know, I challenge you to stay on top of that uh, as you become an elder. But I, I think that to promote intergenerational interactions, one thing we can do is stop isolating elders. I mean, there's a tendency right now uh, for elders who develop physical limitations and particularly cognitive limitations when they have Alzheimer's disease or dementia to really be protected and put in places like nursing home and assisted living communities where younger people do not go. Um, and so if we can liberate elders in our communities and have them become more a part of the fabric of daily life within our communities, while of course maintaining their safety and well-being, um, I, I think there are ways to do that, and I think that would help to promote intergenerational interactions. But I think also just looking at all of the different institutions within our society and thinking about how we can make them accessible to all people is an important first step. Absolutely. I mean, I think 
yeah, so many steps that you know we that we should you know inevitably take uh, you know to bridge this, this generational disconnect because as you know as this trend continues you know especially as technology is increasing, um, it's almost as if you know even in my generation I can barely communicate with my little cousins you know they they just live in a different realm. It's a tricky thing, uh, um, but yeah, I 100% agree. Um, and you know, it, it actually gets me to think about what happens in other countries, um, places like, you know, I'm thinking like Japan, um, Korea, where, you know, not only do people have really strong social connectedness to their elders, um, but on top of that, they practically live forever. Um, I remember one of my friends, uh, he's of Japanese descent, was telling me that his uh, great grandma, uh, great grandparents, who uh, recently passed on, had uh, zero comorbidities uh, near the end of their life. They were 98 and like 99 years old, and um, just kind of passed on through the night. Um, so, I mean, essentially, it seems like they they're doing it right in some capacity, or at least doing it better than us. Um, do you think there are any? You know, I, I should actually put a caveat in there because. We did make a great invention, which is deep fried Twinkies. Um, they're beautiful, <laughs> but they have consequences. Uh, but you know, is there anything that we can that we can glean from those cultures? You know, to to be better. Right. So I have never had a deep fried Twinkie, and I'm not even sure I would want to. I, I so, uh, but I, I, you know, I would say there there definitely are different cultural understandings of aging and different cultural approaches to the interactions um, within communities and, and within families the, around the world. Um, and there are certain areas uh, that have been found to have longer lifespans than others, right? Um, and there's a, a great study, it's called the Blue Zones, where, where they did a study looking at the proportion of centenarians or people that live to be 100 in any given community and there are certain communities that have been identified as these blue zones around the world um and one of them is in japan i, I want to say okinawa um and then also like loma linda california made the list there right and it, it's not as much about where they are in the world as it is the cultural relationships that exist within those communities and how they're shaping in a sense the social determinants of health um, so it's about the behaviors and the lifestyles and the interpersonal interactions and the sense of community that gets developed that supports those interpersonal interactions um, and the just the everyday activities of individuals. And so there certainly are healthier lifestyles and unhealthy lifestyles, right? And there are people in your social support network that contribute to your implementation or your adoption, rather of those healthy or unhealthy lifestyles. So community and relationships really become the answer. Um, and there are cultural aspects to community, of course, and it differs around the world in different ways. I'm not an expert on you know, international, global health, cross-cultural experiences. Um, but what I, what I do know is that community matters, relationships matter, and behaviors matter, and that you can't take any one of those um, and isolate it from the others and have uh, a long and healthy life and that there are cultural factors that are embedded within that. Yeah. But ultimately, it's also about what matters to the person um, as an individual. And if I can, I want to share a little bit because um, I know we're kind of nearing the end of our time, but 
Um, one of the things that has been really interesting to me is the shift in how we're training medical providers in this country. Uh, and this has just happened over the last five years. Um, so there's a, a large um, federal initiative called the Geriatrics Workforce Enhancement Program. It's funded by the Health Resources and Services Administration. Um, and the Sanford Center is fortunate to have one of these awards uh, where we develop and deliver training on geriatrics to practicing providers as well as health profession students. And what's interesting is that about five to seven years ago, this federal agency completely flipped the script in terms of their goals. Uh, prior to that, they were really focused on providing specialized training to ensure that people were going into geriatrics as a specialty. So in other words, they were funding geriatrics fellowship programs and geriatrics nursing programs and geriatrics social work programs um, to ensure that we had enough specialists in our society. And then a light went off with them and they recognized that it doesn't matter how many resources we pump into education and training, we are never gonna train enough specialists to care for the population of elders that is emerging with the aging of our society. And so they shifted focus and now um, what they're trying to accomplish is to ensure that all providers, no matter what specialty they go into, and especially primary care providers, have a basic level of understanding of how to support older adults and have a competence in geriatrics, even without being a specialist. And so the Sanford Center has developed a certificate program to train community providers and health profession students on how to better serve their older patients without trying to turn them into geriatric specialists. Um, and that's a really important shift in our thinking about how we're going to prepare as a healthcare system for supporting older adults moving forward. Um, and just to give you a little lesson on it quickly, it breaks down the model uh, into what we call the four M's. Uh, and these are the four M's of an age-friendly health system. And these are things that all providers should try to understand about the older adult that they're serving through every clinical interaction. The first M is what matters to the patient. What are their priorities for care? The second is medications. What are the medications that they're taking? Because polypharmacy is a huge issue. And are those medications aligned with their conditions? The third is mobility. Frailty and falls are a huge risk factor for the quality of life of older adults. And so that needs to be considered. And then the fourth is mentation. Thinking about depression, dementia, delirium, and so if you think about those four M's, it's like these are the things we need to understand about an older adult in any clinical context to look at the whole person and better meet their needs. Then you're going to be prepared as a provider to better serve that elder. And again, it's what matters to the patient, medications, mobility, and mentation. Those are the four M's of an age-friendly health system. And that's what we're trying to promote for all clinical settings. Yeah, that's definitely something that uh, Sunil and I and the rest of our classmates can definitely take with us moving forward as we become healthcare providers on our own eventually. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely. I think um, you know, in terms of uh, what what we're going uh, what we're going into is you know a healthcare system that is uh, largely geared towards you know people that are going to be um, in an age bracket where they're going to have more chronic conditions, right? Who are going to be in an a relatively older population, uh, so definitely important that we that we understand that. Um, and I, I mean, I can say for myself that you know I'm 100% uh, going going to treat them just as the individuals they are. I mean, while keeping in mind you know what their unique uh, circumstances are in this case. Um, 
So, I mean, I guess just before we head out, are there any uh, final takeaways that you wanted to um, give to our audience? Sure, and I'll kind of bring us back to where we started, but frame it in a little bit different way, if I can. And so when you think about aging, when you think about geriatrics as a specialty within medicine and the health professions, um, always remember that aging is not a disease, right? There may be an accumulation of diseases that come along with the aging process, but aging is a natural lifelong process in every facet uh, of, of the human existence. And it's important to remain cognizant of the fact that all people are individuals and that they have many different aspects to them. Um, and you can't really consider older adults as a homogenous group of people because the diversity present in our society as a whole is reflected among people 65 years and older. Every facet of, of the human experience you can think of is also <laughs> occurring within an elder as you know today. Um, and it, so to recognize the importance of the heterogeneity of older adults and that elderhood is a life stage just like any other, childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and elderhood. It's a life stage in which those individuals have their own rich, diverse experiences throughout life, and they have hopes and dreams and goals, and they learn and they grow and they develop, and they retain the same rights that each of us have as citizens. And it's important to value and to honor their life experiences uh, in your interactions with them, of course, um, but to also recognize that they have the right to change over time as well. They're continuing to grow and develop just like we all are. Um, so it, it's challenging. And ultimately what it comes down to is, you know, really using patient-centered approaches to care or person-centered approaches to understanding individuals and supporting them in promoting their own quality of life and well-being. And ultimately that's the goal, is quality of life and well-being. Yeah, and I think that patient-centered care is important, not only for our geriatric population, but just everyone moving forward in the way that we deliver healthcare as providers one day. And so thank you, Dr. Reed, for that insight. We want to be a little bit uh, mindful of your time here. It was fantastic to have you, and we wish we could extend this conversation a little bit longer because there's just so much wisdom we can learn from you um, that can be applied in our own practice one day. Um, so thank you again for being our guest on our final episode of our first season of Medical Matters. This was a great note to end it on. And to our listeners, thank you again for listening in to our finale. And we'll be back this fall for season two.